Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. It is live. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 107. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a great week. I think some of you might think it's like one of our best episodes yet. We've got Jennifer Barnhart on to talk about Avenue Q and passing the 1500th performance. Playwright Adam Rapp does a great interview talking about his new play at Playwrights Horizons, Essential Self-Defense. We've got Pablo Schreiber talking about his role in the Lincoln Center production of Dying City. We've also got uh, The Green Game from La Muse Vanal, Marty Cooper on the positive side, news and top of the trades, and a lot more. So let's hit it. On the boards. It's a busy week for playwright Adam Rapp as he has a movie opening at South by Southwest and a new play that's going to previews an opening at the Playwrights Horizons. So Adam Rapp is definitely on a busy streak right now and he's here to join us in the studio. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Good. So what has the process been like with Essential Self-Defense? It's been really fun. You know, a lot of the a lot of the actors are actors I've worked with a lot in the past. Um, who are friends of mine, so in some ways it's been like a big party on a pontoon boat, you know, but it's been different in that I, I'm not directing it because I've directed a lot of my own work recently, but I love uh, Carolyn Cantor and, and her company so much, and she's directed my work really successfully before, so that's been fun, and I love working with her and her husband, David, who's the set designer. It's, it really does feel like a bunch of friends getting together and, and kind of throwing a party, uh, which is the best way to, you know, to do theater, I think. I mean, it's not to say that it's not been professional and rigorous. It's just that I feel like it's so hard what we do um, that it should be fun. And so whenever I've been in rehearsals, it certainly felt fun. There's a lot of laughing. And the play is really kind of goofy and out there. And now, What is the play about? Maybe while we're... It's, uh, it's about um, this guy named Ewell Carroll who uh, lives in a, a, a small town in, in the heartland uh, it's a made-up town called Blogs, USA, and he's recently been let go from his job at a television plant uh, because he, he crossed out uh, President Bush's face in the newspaper. And uh, he can't get a job anywhere, and the community kind of doesn't know what to do with him. So he takes a job as an attack dummy in a women's self-defense studio where he, where he wears a big foam suit, like a big Nerf suit and uh, gets beat up for several hours on end by women. <laughs> and he falls in... Well, he, this woman... Um, played by Heather Goldenhurst, her name is Sadie, she accidentally knocks his tooth out, and she's basically afraid of everything and uh, kind of a, agoraphobi- uh, an agoraphobic, and she is drawn to him uh, because he's so strange, I think, and so she wants to return his tooth to him, and when they make that connection, they start to fall in love. So there's a, a strange love story amidst this strange arrangement of how the play starts. Was this at all inspired by the Dixie Chicks? <laughs> no, 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 no Dixie Chicks uh, at all. But it was actually inspired because uh, this, there's a, a woman named Christine Jones who's actually a, a fairly well-known set designer. She has uh, she's doing the Duncan Sheik musical on Broadway right now. Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening, yeah. yeah. And uh, she and her partner uh, Dallas Roberts used to live with me, and um, 
they actually conceived their child in my apartment. And we were we lived together for a couple of years. And she told me about a time when she took a self-defense class. And she told me that there was literally a man who would wear a big foam suit who um, would get beat on all day by this band of women. And I just thought that was like one of the most insane jobs you could ever take. And uh, <laughs> so I just initially, my, my imagination was spurred and I, I was trying to find a way to deal with that character. And I, I couldn't shake, I couldn't shake it. And initially I was going to write it as this little three character uh, karaoke love story uh, that involved a drummer and then the two characters, Yule and Sadie. And they were going to beat on each other at this self-defense studio and every other scene they were going to find themselves at a karaoke bar and they were going to sing the story of their lives to each other. But it, the play just kept expanding for me and I kept kind of being haunted by all these ideas about terror in America and how, especially in the Midwest how uh, there were all these sort of first response workshops that were inspired by 9-11 and people were afraid to leave their homes um, even though the the twin towers were, you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of miles away. So the two the two sort of ideas conflated, and uh, I found myself writing about this community that was beset by terror, and setting this love story in this odd little eccentric love story, uh, in in that context. Now, where are you from originally? Because you don't strike me as an East Coaster. No, I'm from Chicago. I was born in Chicago, and then I, I spent most of my youth in Joliet, Illinois, which is about 35 minutes south. And I went to a military uh, academy for high school in Wisconsin, and I went to college uh, on a basketball scholarship in, in a small school in Iowa. So I'm like Mr. Midwest, you know. <laughs> and I came here in 1991, and I can't, I've never lost my accent, and I, I used to be embarrassed about it, and now I'm kind of proud of it. So it's just, it's, it's in me. You know, I grew up eating hamburger helper and macaroni and cheese and lots of milk and uh, looked at a lot of cows. But uh, I feel like a New Yorker now. I've been here for 16 years. So how do you like the, the New York parties? Do you feel like odd man out? Or? <laughs> I, I never really, I've never really felt good at, at the parties, but I, I, you know, I have enough friends now where I feel social. I used to feel very antisocial, but I think the theater... I'm originally from Montana, so I can oh, definitely uh, understand the very yeah. kind of difference in social attitudes. And Yeah, I've never really, I've never felt like I had the right haircut or had the right clothes, but uh, there's something about the theater community here that, you know, I was talking about it earlier today. There's a lot of a lot of misfits in the theater community and a lot of people from the Midwest who are expatriates or from Oklahoma, like Paul Sparks, who stars in the play, is from Oklahoma and this really small town in Oklahoma that I don't even know the name of. Um, and Heather Goldenhirsch is from St. Louis and, you know, Michael Chernis, who's in the play, is from Ohio. It's just this, it's this cauldron of Midwesterners who've, like, come come out here to rediscover themselves. You, know? you were mentioning that you frequently have kind of directed your own works, but you've kind of gone all ways. You've directed your own works. You've had other people direct your works. You've directed stuff that other people have written. Mm-hmm. How does it all play around, and does that lead into, like, kind of you're having a hard time letting go for another director? What I've learned in the last few years is that I'm just a storyteller, and I think for me, uh, when I direct my own work, it's just an extension of the authorship. It's not, I don't put big concepts on my work. I don't... Um, it's all about, often about keeping actors in a room together and not letting them leave. I think a, a, a piece like this, which has many, many scenes and many, many transitions, I'm a little more daunted by uh, where, when the machinery of the play is really huge. When it's just a few scenes and it's just a, a couple of actors behaving in a room, I feel very confident with that. Um, with that said, I just directed Julian Shepard's play down at the Flea, Los Angeles, which was an amazing experience, and it was 
11 actors and three musicians and 10 consecutive scenes that are all duets. And it was a huge, the biggest theatrical challenge I've ever had. And um, I'm really pleased with the results. So I'm learning more about like how those how those plays are cracked. Um, but with my own work, I've, 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 I'm more interested in the smaller plays. But I think now that I've gone through this process with Julian on Los Angeles and you know, watching Carolyn work with Essential Self-Defense, I think I'm more ready to handle one of my bigger plays. But I just love working with actors, and I love, I love working with writers. I love working with designers. I just feel like, for me, I'm just a storyteller. And uh, whether I'm wearing the director hat or the playwriting hat, it doesn't really matter. And the rooms that I tend to be in, it, it's, it's usually pretty democratic, and best idea wins. So um, when I'm directing, I, you know, sometimes the stage manager will have a good idea, and, and that's, that's good with me, too. Um, I don't like this sort of hierarchical, totalitarian type of room that a lot of directors can find themselves in. I had some really bad, bad experiences early on in my playwriting career where directors uh, were putting huge concepts on my work that I didn't intend, and or they were stylizing something that was uh, co- compromising the play. So I just started to think like, well, if I'm going to fight against this, then I better learn how to direct. And so I started stealing a lot of ideas from other directors that I had worked with. Uh, there was this guy named Mike Bradwell who just stepped down from the Bush Theater in London who had a huge impact on me as a director and the way he um, builds plays. And he spends a lot of time around the table and he spends a lot of time getting the thoughts right before he ever puts people on stage. And I just think that's really important. He also doesn't audition, which is something that I tend to stay away from as much as possible. I find auditioning to be a really... Uh, elusive process where actors come in with this really big result when they haven't had any process. So it's there's a lie already, you know, at work. And I just feel like I, I'd, I'd rather just know an actor's work or I'd ha- have an instinct about them. And I'll, so I'll have coffee with them or I'll, I'll see them in something and I'll, I'll want to see if I can get along with them um, in some way, shape or form. And I'd prefer that. Has that ever resulted in a mistake? Not not yet. You know, I've been really lucky. Like Chris Denham in Red Light Winter, I, I was meeting him about something else. Um, he was an admirer, and we shared an agent, and he's also a writer, and he came and met me, and I immediately, like three minutes into the conversation, had this flash that he would be uh, great in Red Light Winter as, as Matt. And I, I was like, what are you doing February? And he was like, what, why? And I was like, because I wrote this play, and I'd love you to read it, and it's going to be done at Steppenwolf. And it turned out he's from Chicago, so he could work as a local. Um, and Gary Wilms, in the same way, I'd seen him in Richard Maxwell's work. And I was always a huge fan, and I ran into him at a party, and it just struck me when I was speaking to him that he, was, he had that kind of charm uh, that the character Davis needs to seduce the audience in some ways. And he's such a funny guy, Gary. And, um, and I, I sent him a script, and that's how we cast it. And I, I, I auditioned in Chicago for the female role, and I found... I found Lisa Joyce through auditions, but it was a really arduous process. It was like I saw 55 women, and they were really pushing all the more famous girls in Chicago on me, and I was really drawn to Lisa uh, and just how she had so much poise, and I had no idea that she was so young and that she was just out of DePaul. and So it was like another thing that drew me to her beyond like just her resume or people talking about her. So I've, I tend to cast in that way, and... I think auditioning can be very reductive, and I, I just hate—I hate that actors work really hard and they come in, and most of them aren't going to get the job. And I hate putting them through that because uh, I think because my brother was an actor, and I just saw what he, how he struggled too. I, I'm a little sensitive to it. Though he's ended up doing quite well as well. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's really good at auditioning actually. Um, he's one of those guys who can get the job and walk in the room and nail it. You know, that's a whole muscle he's figured out. 
you have a lot on your plate pretty much all the time, I'm kind of guessing. So what is like a typical day in the life of Adam Rapp? Because you do books, you do movies and writing and directing and plays writing and directing. Right now, to be honest, I, I have a, I got a puppy. I got him in September. I brought him home in October. He's a, he's a puggle, which is a little embarrassing because he's such a fashionable dog to have. But I just saw him in the window of this pet store and he was the cutest thing I'd ever seen and I bought him. And uh, he's really dominating my life right now. I mean, he's seven months old. It's been great because he's amazing and he's really funny and he's got all this energy. But like he just got neutered and he has diarrhea and, you know, there's just all these huge responsibilities and getting him outside and getting him fed and that I didn't uh, anticipate them being so enormous. And so he's really dominating my life right now, trying to get him to like grow up right, you know. Uh, but honestly, a typical day is I, I do a lot of writing when I'm not directing. If I'm directing, I'm pretty much not writing. But when I'm not directing, I'm writing a lot. And um, it's strange. I, people have asked me this question, like, what, what is my schedule or what, what is my process like? And I can't even answer it. I don't, I don't keep regular hours. Because yeah, a lot of writers have, like, a ritual. They yeah. go to a place and yeah. they get in their zone. And it sounds like it's almost impossible for you to develop that kind. Of... Well, it's been hard for me to not write. And that's the only process I can really speak to. Like, it's, it's so compulsive and I have a need to do it all the time that I um, sometimes have to make myself not do it so I can actually tend to my life. And uh, my life has been in shambles. Like, my personal relationships and my laundry and, you know, paying bills. Now I have someone who pays my bills. And it's always been a challenge uh, because it overwhelms me. And I just, once I start, I can I can go for hours and hours and hours and I forget to eat. And the only thing I really break for is to play basketball and to kind of just walk around outside and just get a some fresh air. And a lot of times, you know, days melt away. And I, you know, when I'm in that zone, uh, I, I love that. You know, it's just, it's like going down a, a rabbit hole that I, that I enjoy, but when I'm directing, it's much, much, much different. I, it's, it's, I'm much more of a, a practical person in the world, and I show up on time, and I, I'm very rigorous about scheduling, and I'm very focused. And, uh, but when I'm writing, I'm just a big, irresponsible mess, and I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just impossible to get in touch with, and I'm really bad about spending time with friends, and I'm still learning how to manage that. I'm, uh, I'm an adult, and I'm, I need to learn how to manage that. At any given time, how many projects do you think you're writing on? Well, I, I, I try not to write more than two or three. I'm, I try to write one if possible, and I write till the end, uh, at least a draft uh, of a play or a, or a novel. I'll just focus on that. But sometimes I'll take a break for a couple of weeks if I have a, a project that is paying me money that I have to, you know, like a television project, which I try to stay away from. But I do them just to, to, so I can stay financially ahead of the game, you know. But generally two or three. You know, I have a commission out with the Roundabout Theater right now that I've finished recently. I have two graphic novels that are almost finished, the scripts for. Um, I have another young adult novel that I've been working on for a year that I'm supposed to turn in in the early part of the summer that I'm making some progress on. But now that Los Angeles is open and we're about to get into audiences for essential self-defense, I think I can sort of really go back to focusing purely on the writing for a while. I'm not going to direct again until the fall. Well, I thank you very much for coming down at this very busy time. Again, essential self-defense is running through April 15th? That's correct, yeah, April 15th. All right, and that's at Playwrights Horizons, and a lot more on the horizon for you for our audience to look out for. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having okay. me. Schadenfreude, huh? What's that, some kind of Nazi word? Yup, it's German for happiness at the misfortune of others. Happiness at the misfortune of others. That is German. Watching a vegetarian being told she 
just ate chicken <laughs> Or watching a frat boy realize Just what he put his dick in <laughs> Being on an elevator When somebody shouts, hold the door! Avenue Q, that puppet musical, which was the surprise Tony winner a couple years back, just passed its 1500th performance, and we have original cast member, the only original cast member left with the production, Jennifer Barnhart, who's been with the show for, what did we say, about 85% of the performances? Something like that, yeah, I mean, to the best of my recollection. Is here to chat with us about the show, its history, its uh, longevity, and you'll finally be able to hear some of those uh, blue tracks that they can't play on the network. Yes, it's <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> so, I guess, first off, you actually studied puppeteering. Yes, I did. Um, I studied puppetry at the University of Connecticut, which is currently still, I believe, the only university in the country that offers accredited degree programs, both undergraduate and graduate level, in puppetry. Now, there are other puppetry programs sprouting up around the country in different university programs, and that's great. Uh, but that was where I studied. And so, it's a 30-year-old program, at least. So did you tell your parents, don't worry, I'm going to be in the first Broadway play to run puppetry and be working for four <laughs> years steady? Getting well, it's kind of funny. <laughs> Actually, um, my folks were fairly understanding because my brother sort of blazed the trail for me. He um, was the first performer in the family. I have a brother five years older than me. His name is Jeff Barnhart. Uh, check him out on iTunes.com. Um, he is a ragtime piano player, which is sort of a very specialty niche kind of area of performing music. And he started doing that. And he's been playing professionally since he was 15. So my folks saw that. And then I was, you know, an up-and-coming actress. And uh, they were like, well, okay, it seemed to work out for your brother. I hope it'll work out for you. And it wasn't until I got to college that I found an outlet to do this thing I'd always wanted to do since I was a little kid, which was puppetry. So at first, you know, my family was like, oh, okay, fine. But on the other hand, in New York, I'm a tall, blonde, deep-voiced actress. I am one of 200,000 of me in this city. But because, and I wish that this was TV so you could see that I'm lip-syncing <laughs> with my hand, because I do this, uh, because I'm a puppeteer, that is a point of difference for me. And it is how I've been able to make my living as a performer. Are you the only cast member currently that has studied puppeteering? Uh, formally, yeah. yes. And uh, also, I suppose I should cover all the bases here. I'm, I'm the last original principal uh, cast member. We do have two understudies who are also original company members, Amy Garcia and Carmen Ruby Floyd. And they're fabulous. Um, but I am the last, as I like to call it, I'm the last native speaker of puppetry. Um, I actually got to do some of the puppet captaining and some of the teaching and coaching for some of the audition process. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if, if you get called on a lot for sometimes. In the I was for a while, and, it, and it's certainly more like learning by osmosis and just by the fact of being able to work alongside people. You know, you, you, you learn from them in that way. But I was uh, coaching and, and teaching during the audition process when I had puppet camp as sort of the final round of callbacks. And I would say, hi, uh, my name is Jennifer. I perform in Avenue Q. Performing in Avenue Q with puppets is a lot like performing in a show that is a in a foreign language. Um, I am a native speaker. The people who are in the show now are conversationally fluent. And at the end of these two days of working together, I hope you can say, hello, my name is Where's the Bathroom? That's <laughs> all I need you to say. As long as you can show that you can communicate an idea. That's the kind of thing that's going to distinguish whether or not you can really take this and, and run with it. And it takes probably about six months 
to become conversationally fluent. I mean, and kids are thrust out on that stage with puppets on their hands with, you know, very little time, and they have to catch up and ramp up really, really fast. But uh, it's really fun, especially because I've been with the show so long. It's been really fun for me to watch the progression and the development of all of the other uh, actors on the show and their abilities with puppetry. You know, there's three actors who don't do the puppets in the show, but I, I right. think it, it, it's clear that the, the puppeteers have the most fun in the show. It's a lot. Well, because you're getting to play more than one character, too, which is also part of the fun, you know, and it's and it's a bit like chewing gum and walking and juggling and riding a unicycle all at the same time. You know, so it, it is definitely fun and challenging in that way. This is actually the first time I saw the show, and all the, all this time, my girlfriend had resisted. I'm gonna, I want to get this out there because I think there's maybe other people who have the same resistance. Uh, my girlfriend was thought that the idea of puppets on stage was going to be creepy to her. Yeah. This is her exact wording. And you won her over. She was like amazed that, you know, she could watch the puppets and the actors and the actors were still giving the expression and that it was, you know, interesting to watch both and she really actually enjoyed it. And that, quite frankly, the story makes sense to be sold with puppets. Oh, absolutely. And and there's a lot of, of lines and songs in the show that you can't say. I mean, you can say them, but having a puppet on gives you the ability and the freedom to be able to say things that you otherwise would not be able to say. I mean, when this I was learning... It sounds like a segue into the first song it, we're going to play. It does. <laughs> and, and I was walking down the street learning, you know, as I was studying, I was trying to learn the music to everyone's a little bit racist. And, you know, if you're, if you're singing that down the street, people are going to look at you funny. And I did get a few looks, but... When you've got a puppet on your hand, you can sing things like that and nobody minds. It somehow becomes accessible, acceptable. It's like it breaks the taboo of it. Two of our, our characters, uh, Princeton and Kate Monster, uh, are having a little flirtation beginning at the, at the beginning of the play. And um, Princeton is inquiring things about Kate being a monster because she's a monster activist. You know, she wants to develop a school for monsters. So he wants to get to know her a little bit and get to know a bit of her, her lifestyle and what that's like. And that's foreign to him. And so he asks her, so you're a monster. And then there's Trekkie Monster, and he's a monster, so it's Kate Monster and Trekkie Monster. So are you two related? And she's completely affronted by that and and, and says, what? You know, Princeton, I'm surprised at you, and and all of this stuff. And and, and so uh, they examine what the nature of being racist is because she says, I find that to be a racist statement. And he says, well, you want to open a school for monsters? She says, yes. And he says, well, can someone like me go to your school? And she says, well, no, because we don't want people like you there. And he goes, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Okay, shoes on the other foot. You see, you're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. I guess we're both a little bit racist. Admitting it is not an easy thing to do. But I guess it's true. Between me and you, I think everyone's a little bit racist. Sometimes. Doesn't mean we go around committing hate crimes. Look around and you will find no one's really colorblind. Maybe it's a fact we all should face. Everyone makes judgments based on race. Now, not big judgments like who to hire or who to buy a newspaper from. No. No, just little judgments like thinking that Mexican busboys should learn to speak goddamn English. Right. Everyone's a little bit racist today. So everyone's a little bit racist. Okay. Ethnic jokes might be uncouth, but you laugh because they're based on truth. Don't take them as personal attacks. Everyone enjoys them. So relax. All right, stop me if you've heard this one. Okay. All right, there's a plane going down. Uh-huh. There's only one parachute, mm. and there's a rabbi, a priest, and a black guy. Yeah. What you talking about, Kate? Uh, he 
you were telling a black joke. Well, sure, Gary, but lots of people tell black jokes. I don't. Well, of course you don't. You're black. But I bet you tell Polak jokes, right? Well, sure I do. <laughs> Those stupid Polaks. <laughs> now, don't you think that's a little racist? <laughs> well, damn. I guess you're right. You're a little bit racist. Well, you're a little bit too. We're all a little bit racist. I think that I would have to agree with you. We're, We're glad you do. It's sad but true. Everyone's a little bit racist. All right. All right. All right. All right. Bigotry has never been exclusively white. If we all could just admit that we are racist a little bit, even though we all know that it's wrong, maybe it would help us get along. Hey, come back here. You'll take all these like birds. What's that mean? Um... Recyclables. <laughs> hey, don't laugh at her. How many languages do you speak? Oh, come off it, Brian. Everyone's a little bit racist. I'm not. Oh, no. Nope. Huh. How many Oriental wives have you got? What? Brian. Brian, buddy, where you been? The term is Asian American. I know you. support work. In fact, you're one of the only two people who like does this thing where it's two people operating one puppet. Right. And um, and it's sort of um, as much as we're referencing and sort of um, um, you know, you've, you've got the children's television genre, you've got Sesame Street, you've got all these other shows. And if you have sort of the archetype of say, okay, say an Ernie and Bert kind of pairing, similar to a Nicky and Rod kind of pairing in that archetype, um, you've got one of them that is a Rod puppet, which means that his arms are on little sticks. And you've got Ernie, who is a, what they call a live hands or a glove puppet. And uh, so that means that you actually put your hand inside a glove and it allows for a much greater form of expressivity um, and expression with the puppet. And that requires a second person. And it's something that you don't think about when you're watching it on television uh, because you figure, oh, well, okay, he's got a mouth and he's got two hands, fine. But, you know, as soon as one person is doing the mouth and one hand, well, that leaves an empty glove and that's where I come in. So uh, it was just a means of showing another style of puppetry in this. And when you asked about the puppetry, and, and as far as your girlfriend being a little creeped out about it um, and, and saying that she enjoyed watching the puppeteers and the puppets, 
Um, that was kind of a happy accident when the show was being developed. Originally, the show was being pitched as a primetime show for television. So the creators of the show were trying to get, you know, TV producers to come to readings. So there are the puppeteers sitting there with their scripts on their music stands, and they're they're doing what any other reading would do. They'd be they were sitting there reading from the script. And I, I wish the, the characters. listeners could see this for a moment because she's got the most expressive hands. They're just going constantly, <laughs> constantly. She's definitely a puppeteer. <laughs> so just true. imagine the most gesticulating. Aunt or sister that you've ever had. <laughs> she continues to talk. <laughs> Thank you. So, so they're doing the reading, and the puppets are interacting with each other. And uh, the results, that, or the feedback that they got from people who came to these readings, they gave two comments to the creators almost every time in the same order. The first comment was always, I love the music. The music is brilliant. And the second comment was always, I loved watching the puppeteer do their job. Now, that was something that the creators had not really factored in. At first, they were thinking, okay, we're going to have to hide the puppeteers. Uh, you know, if we, if we do this as a theatrical venue, in a theatrical venue, we're going to have to build the set with holes and in, the, in the floor so that we can hide the puppeteers. But it became apparent that that was actually something that people really enjoyed about the process. And also, because the puppets are very simple, they don't have a lot of eye mechanisms or anything like that or servos or whatever, there's only just so much you can do with the puppet as far as creating an expression. Now, when you've got a camera, when you're doing it for TV, you've got a single point of view. But when you're doing it for a theater, you've got 800 individual points of view that you have to make it read for. So our faces and our emotional expression acts as sort of a subtle interpreter for what's happening with the puppet. Because on a camera, I can just turn my head ever so slightly with a puppet, and it conveys a world of, of sadness or, or being pensive or any other thing. But here, you need to have a little bit of guidance from what's happening in the puppeteer's body and the puppeteer's face. As Rick Lyon, uh, the original Nicky Trekkian designer of the puppets and of the puppets themselves for the show, he once had a really good way of putting it. He said, watching the first five minutes of Avenue Q is very much like watching the first five minutes of a foreign film with subtitles. Because you're very aware of looking up and down and up and down and up and down, reading the subtitles and then looking back up at the action. And after the first five minutes, it just becomes part of the storytelling and it's seamless and you don't really notice it anymore. And I thought that was a really good metaphor for describing what it's like to go, okay, here's a world where puppets and people are walking around with puppets on their arms. What do I make of this? Well, okay, um, let me see. You know, some people say they just look at the puppets. Some people say they just look at the puppeteers. But most people say that, that they really get a nice balanced performance from watching both. So, In a lot of ways, Avenue Q has been really groundbreaking. A lot of people kind of credit Avenue Q as finally, like, breaking down the barrier for smaller shows, quirkier shows, to really have room on Broadway. I mean, it's unlikely... The producers would have considered putting Spelling Bee on Broadway without the success of Avenue Q, for Interesting. Instance. Interesting. And yeah, I could see that. And it's funny because um, I was actually at a talkback recently and Jeff Marks, one of the composers of the show, was sitting there and talking about it. And somebody said, so, you know, what was it like? Did you feel disappointed when it wasn't going to be a TV series? And he said, well, when you're, when you're doing these readings and a producer comes up to you and says, have you thought about doing it as a theater piece? Because if you did, I think I'd be interested in it. And he said, and if a producer says, I'd be interested in it, you say yes. <laughs> okay, yeah, it can be a theater piece. That's just great. <laughs> um, so uh, what I think really helped the show was that it had a, a long development process. I mean, they did a bunch of different readings. I saw it, uh, it in one of its earliest readings in the York Theater and thought, oh, my God, this is brilliant. I, I hope it goes somewhere. It's just 
genius, and I had no idea then that I was going to be getting to go with it. But at um, that point, how hard were you campaigning to get in it with your background in puppeteering? Well, it's funny. I mean, because all of the house people were from Sesame Street and other puppeteers that I knew and I'd worked alongside, and all the people on stage were people that I knew, and I just thought, oh man, I thought, boy, I hope they expand the cast, or you know, I'd love to be a part of this. So, and it, and it turned out that I was fortunate enough to do so. But so it went from there to the Eugene O'Neill Theater Conference, and they learned a lot during that process about how, you know, about structure and how to make it work. And there was a lot of back and forth with the book writer. And the book writer, actually, this is kind of funny, the book writer for our opening night gift off-Broadway gave us gave us a collection called I Have Never Lain With a Man. And that was a deleted line of Mrs. Thistletwats from an earlier <laughs> version of the script. And he gave us all of the deleted scenes. And it was 126 pages. That's how much this show was worked on and revised and changed. And, and they had so many different ideas about it. And, and I think it really shows because they did have a lot of, okay, we got to work this out. How do we make this work? How do we make this work? And, and I think it, it really helped the show in the long run. Let's maybe go into one more song from the show before we continue. Yes. Uh, this one is called uh, I Wish I Could Go Back to College. Oh, it's so universal. Um, all of the characters are, are facing troubling times and, and having a bit of existential crises. And there's it's, it's a lot of why the show was written. I mean, the creators of the show talked about how when you're a kid and you watch children's television, you learn you're special and, and just dream big and, you know, you can be whatever you want to be and everything's going to be waiting for you. And then you go to college and you graduate from college and you move back home with your folks and you temp. And you go, well, wait a minute. Where, where's, the, where's the magic, you know, where's the magic bullet here? I was supposed to be something else. I was supposed to do something else. And so uh, the song is very much about a return to that feeling of safety before you, before you become a little disillusioned, before you grow up a little bit, before you lose a bit of that innocence. I wish I could go back to college. Life was so simple back then. What would I give? To go back and live in a dorm with a meal plan again. <sighs> I wish I could go back to college. In college you know who you are. You sit in the quad and think, oh my god, I am totally gonna go far. How do I go back to college? I don't know who I am anymore. And go back to my room and find a message and dry erase pen on the door. Whoa, I wish I could just drop a class or get into a play or change my major or fuck my TA. I need an academic advisor to point the way. We could be sitting in the computer lab 4 a.m. before the final paper is due. Cursing the world cause my day didn't start sooner And seeing the rest of the class there too I wish I could go back to college How do I go back to college? Oh. I wish I had taken more pictures But if I were to go back to college Think what a loser I'd be I'd walk through the quad And think, oh my god These kids are so much younger than me 
uh, now that you've heard the song, I want, uh, I, I just wanted to share this story with you, which is so funny, because oftentimes, because it's a show with puppets in it, we have people bringing their kids, which is always kind of funny. <laughs> so I always look at the parents and go, oh, I hope they're precocious. Um, you know, and sometimes they'll, they'll want to have their, their little programs uh, autographed. And so I try to ask them questions. And, and I asked this young girl who was probably about 10 years old, so uh, what was your favorite song? And she said, the song about wanting to go back to college. And I said, excuse me for asking, but how old are you? And she said, 10. And I said, why is that your favorite song? She said, because I wish I could go back to kindergarten. We didn't have homework. We got to have playtime all the time. And I thought, okay, this song is so universal that here is this 10-year-old girl who is putting it in a relevant context that, that she can relate to. That is great. We've talked a lot about Avenue Q, rightfully, but I think we got to do a little bit of talking about you here. Because mm. somewhere in the middle of your... Uh, 12, 1300 or so performances, give or take, that you've done of Avenue Q. You're still doing work with uh, Sesame Street. Yes. And some other things as well. So maybe yes. tell us a little bit about some of the other exciting avenues that you pursue in puppeteering. Um, avenues, as it were. Very nice. Um, uh, actually, I just returned from a three-week hiatus from Avenue Q where I was down in Mississippi uh, shooting a show called Between the Lions. It's a show for PBS, and it's about a family of lions who live in and run a public library, and the show helps teach kids how to read. And I play the mama lion on it, and it is rather my first love. It, it is a show that I adore doing, largely because I believe in what it's trying to do, and it's, you know, it's really helping out a lot. And one of the reasons we're shooting in Mississippi is because they have a, an early literacy problem down there that our show has been instrumental in helping them remedy. So I feel very proud of that work. And it was also the show that enabled me to leave the desk job. That was the show that started me actually making my living as a performer. So it is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, and another project that I just was working on recently is Johnny and the Sprites, which is a show for the Disney Channel. And it stars John Tartaglia, who is the original Princeton uh, off-Broadway and Broadway. Okay. And he is on camera as a human. Uh, so he's interacting with puppet characters, and the show is very fun. There's a lot of great music. There's a lot of great Broadway composers working on it. Got um, Mark Holman and Gary Adler and Michael Patrick Walker and Marcy and Zena, and you know, just it was so great to have this Broadway community of composers writing for this show for Disney, because in a lot of children's shows, songs can just sort of be stuck in, but because we had people who wrote with musical theater sensibility, the songs were driving the narrative. And so that made the episodes particularly fun to work on. So I was one of the puppeteers on that as well, and it was great to get to play with John. And also another human character on the show is Natalie Venetia Belcone, who was the original Gary Coleman. So she's a human on the show, so it's nice to, to explain, have. there's actually a character who plays, who is yes. Gary Coleman in the musical. With uh, passing its 1500th performance, how many more do you think you got in you? Me? Oh, wow. Bring it on. As long as they'll have me, I'm happy to be there. You know, you look thrilled still being there. It's like, it's always interesting. There's, I think, certain actors that, stage is a different beast, especially in, you know, even actors who loved the stage maybe in community theater when they grew up, find doing a two-weekend run on their, you know, Ohio stage, you know, versus <laughs> now exactly. they're creating the same thing, eight shows a week for week after week after week. It's interesting to see how the different people... Take yeah. the whole thing, and you still you still seem to be having a ball on stage. You clearly hear. I am. Here, so it, 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 frankly, I'm kind of amazed by that fact. I, I would not have thought uh, that it was something that I necessarily would find. And I, and I won't say that I find it easy because I mean, uh, no performer will tell you that it's easy. It's always a very it's a challenging schedule. And 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 I think some of the hardest things are things like you know I've missed six weddings. I've missed you know a, a bunch of personal things that you just can never seem to quite get the time off for. That's really sort of the hardest part about it. But 
This is the longest gig I've ever had. I feel so blessed to have this gift. And it's, the show is a good show, too. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was just a hit, but it's, it's, it's a hit and it's a good show. And I'm very proud of my work in it, and I'm proud of everyone's work in it. And because there have been some cast changes, I mean, every time there's a new person, it's a whole new show. Because it's only seven onstage principals. So the whole energy of the thing changes. So it keeps growing for me, uh, and I feel very fortunate. But also with what I do, it's so much about the relationship with my partner, with my dance partner. And I've had three full-time Nikki Trekkies now, and I've had nine or ten total if you include understudies and vacation swings. And so that's a whole different thing altogether. I mean, Rick jokingly referred to us as the Fred and Ginger of puppetry when we when we first started working together. And it is a dance partnership. You know, I've got my hand on the small of his back and I'm I'm along for the ride and, and you know, it's it's really fun. I find it very gratifying. Well, thank you very much for coming down to talk to our listeners about the show. Thank and, you so much for having me, Michael. let them hear a couple of the songs. And we're going to ring this out with just a little snippet of another song. I'm not even going to say the title because they're going to get it very quickly when it comes <laughs> up. But thanks for coming down. Thanks for having me, Michael. Grab your dick and double click for porn. Porn, porn, porn. I hate porn. the internet. Porn, porn, I'm leaving. Porn, I hate porn, the internet. Porn. The internet is for internet is for internet is for porn. Yeah. The call board. All right, we got a couple events coming up. On April 3rd, composers Alan Boblil and Claude Michael Schoenberg will be signing books at Barnes & Noble in Lincoln Center in New York City from 6 to 7 p.m. That's a short window, so if you're a fan, uh, get there early. On April 9th, Broadway bullet friend Daphne Rubin-Vega, we heard her interview in Volume 19, will be appearing at Joe's Pub with her band. And on April 16th, Seth's Broadway 101. Seth Rudetsky will host a fundraiser for the Actors Fund called A Masterclass in Belting, Divas, and Hostile Opinions. For more, visit www.actorsfund.com. Now we got a few uh, listener reports, which I like, and it's fun to put these in. By the way, you can always email me with your comments and suggestions. I love hearing from you at info at broadwaybullet.com. I want to give a big thank you to Michael Murphy, who has taken all of the survey data that you guys filled out and uh, putting it into very complex and meaningful form to present and let people know what it all means. He's done this a lot, and I guess he usually does it for accounting, and he much prefers doing it for arts. So thank you to Michael Murphy. Also, a big thank you to listeners Chris Moran, who wrote about us in entertainmentspectrum.com, and Joanna Meets, who blogged about us enthusiastically. Yay! Um, we put out a call for companies, and Neil Ginsburg and Carl Han have offered up their penis services. Uh, wait, no, that sounds bad. They'll accompany us when needed. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's great. Now that we know we got some accompanists, I can start uh, leaning on some people to do some singing here in the studio and know we can provide somebody for them to play. So thanks again, Neil Ginsburg and Carl Hahn. We'll be letting you more details about them when they're playing for people. And uh, another cool thing from a listener, the Plan B Theater Company in Salt Lake City, Utah, is transferring its world premiere production of Facing East to Off-Broadway from Salt Lake City for a limited engagement. Plan B Theater Company is reportedly the first Utah-based theater company in history to transfer a production off-Broadway. And director Jerry Rapier is an avid Broadway bullet listener. He told me about this. And he'll be making his off-Broadway debut as a director as well. So congratulations, Jerry. Uh, we definitely hope to get you on the show while you're here. 
There's also some stuff going on for Nymph. Remember them, the New York Musical Theatre Festival? We're going to be covering them in depth again this August and September for the festival. But they've got their first ever Nymph Spring Concert Series launching March 26th. They've got a lot of stuff going on, including another round of the unauthorized musicology of Ben Folds. So support Nymph. Bringing a lot of great musicals to New York City and the rest of the country. You can go to their website at nymf.org for more information. Again, you can reach me at info at broadwaybullet.com with all your suggestions and praise and uh, critiques, I guess, too. Yeah, whatever. I enjoy hearing all of it. It lets me know that you guys are listening. All right, so let's jump back into another interview. On the boards. Dying City is a play by Christopher Shin that recently premiered at Lincoln Center. And while the title may be a metaphor about personal relationships as well as a certain city, the show definitely is not a dying proposition for one actor who really shines taking on dual roles. Pablo Schreiber plays Twins, and he is here in the studio today to talk about the show and his career. How are you doing? I'm good, Mike. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic. So what drew you to this role? Well, there's a lot of obvious things that drew me to it. One is just the, the simple challenge, or difficult challenge, I guess, of playing two twin brothers. Um, is As an actor, you know, presented with that opportunity to look into yourself and find two aspects of yourself that to put them up against themselves and contrast them in, in, uh, in one evening of theater was uh, definitely uh, the thing that first off drew me to it. And then, of course, um, just being relevant to what's happening in the world today is always something I try to look for in work that I do, is somehow have, have a dialogue with the audience about the world that's around them and, and what's going on in their own lives. So, Now, before we talk about the play a little bit more, uh, you're, you have kind of an interesting career path. You have a, a large body of television and film work, you know, from like 2000 onward. Is that about when you... Yeah, I graduated from uh, drama school in 2000, so since then I've been working. You worked very frequently, but it just seems like you had a hard time, you know, cutting through to name status. It... Yeah, yeah, gosh, well, I, I don't even know. Have I cut through to name status? I, I well, guess you're, you're interviewing me here and calling me Pablo Schreiber, so I guess I have a name. <laughs> well, but, then, um, you, then you step onto the Broadway stage last right. year and Awake and Sing, and what happens? Yeah, I got nominated for a Tony in my yeah. Broadway debut, which was um, uh, fascinating and thrilling and, and sort of unbelievable all at the same time. Um, and yeah, so I guess Awake and Sing was big in terms of breaking me through, in the theater world at least, to, um, to people knowing who I was and being aware of my my work. Um, yeah, you know, acting, I'm, I'm 28 years old, and, and I, I look at it as a lifetime occupation, so I have a tendency to, just because I'm an ambitious person, to, um, to get impatient with things and, and want them to be moving faster than they are. So I've, I've battled that ever since I got out of acting school. But, you know, I'm, I'm just so thankful that things are picking up and moving fast now. I always wonder what, like, an agent's discussion is behind the scenes when, uh, you know, you're, you're doing well in the film and TV and then you decide to step in and do something on Broadway. Is your agent like, this is a good move, or is he like, whoa, 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 we're going to lose some momentum here? Everybody was delighted about that because uh, I had, about two and a half years ago, no, three years ago now, I had made a concerted effort to start doing more theater. Um, I was working very frequently in uh, TV and film and was sort of disenchanted with the, the opportunities and the roles I was getting and people I was being able to work with. And, and I decided, you know, I was trained in theater and, and I wanted to get back to that. I wanted to get back on stage and have a, a d direct uh, interaction with the audience and, and get back to really feeling people uh, appreciating and, and having a dialogue with people right there in the moment. Um, so I did that. I told my agents I, I want to do theater for a while and I want to try and build that and see where that goes. So we were really on a path, you know, to, to build that and see where it went. And it was a three-year progression of really just kind of moving up the rungs. And, and Lincoln Center on Broadway was kind of 
the peak of, of that experience. So everyone, when I got that job, was very thrilled. And obviously, it turned out well. So Stepping back to Dying City, you know, not only do you play twins, but you get to play two very different characters. Is mm. One is, you know, one is gay and has, it seems to me kind of throughout the show, kind of an admiration slash jealous relationship with his other brother who is very military mm. and, and brought up. And uh, what, what were the, some of the biggest challenges you found in in terms of setting up the two characters there? Well, just purely uh, having two different, being one human being myself and trying to bring two living, breathing characters to life and have them be true and honest. And that, of course, was the basic challenge set forth. Um, You said jealousy and um, and he also looks up to him. I I guess I hadn't thought a lot about the jealousy. There's, I think he he hates himself. The the jealousy I see in the Uh show is the wife. Aha, uh-huh, sure. He's, she, he's she very cleared. jealous of her. Um, he's very. He has a lot of mixed feelings about her. He has a lot of difficult feelings about himself. This is. Um, we're talking about Peter now, the gay character, and and he has a lot of self-loathing that he's working through. And his way of dealing with self-loathing is to idolize Craig, who you know he can put on a pedestal and say was sort of the perfect version of who he wants to be. So he's he's come back to deal with his uh, twin brother's ex-wife um, and help her in his own uh, manipulative way to to deal with. Uh, her emotions and feelings around the thing, which which she hasn't dealt with since his death. So yeah, he he idolizes him, and he he sort of has this version of him as the thing that he would like to emulate in, as a human being, which is completely idealized because Craig himself had all these issues of violence and of uh, manipulation and and not really being such an upright citizen. So I've seen more than one review comment on that. This seems like a real departure for Lincoln Center. You know, mm. young playwright. You know, as a mm. cast, you two are pretty young. She's you know making her uh, a pretty significant. You know, Dave, Rebecca Brookshire is yeah. a pretty significant Fantastic stage actress, debut. Yeah. It's not the debut, but it, as far as a real big, juicy, professional yeah. role, it seems to be her her coming out. Yeah. Now, the design of the stage is very simple <clears throat> but effective. And there comes a moment that I'm wondering if you guys feel on stage. It seemed like the whole audience kind of discovered at the same time that, oh, the, the set's turning. Mm, what moment was that for you? Do you remember? I can't remember the specific moment on stage, but it didn't seem like it was just me. It seemed like all of a sudden this wave kind of happened right around me where the audience realized. And I'm wondering if you felt, if you feel Interesting. that. No, I don't feel it in a specific moment. I've I've sort of canvassed people and asked them after, and it seems like people sort of have different times. I think that's the beauty of the thing is that we, basically to catch people up to speed, we, we're on a, a platform. The stage rotates 360 degrees over the course of the show, but that, over an hour and a half, so very slowly, and it's moving the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um so I think at, at different times in the show, people sort of have this dawning realization like, uh, wait a second, I was looking at this from a different angle a moment ago. And, and in a great way, hopefully that's a metaphor for the show it, and the play is that you're constantly having to rediscover what you know and look at it at a, from a new angle because of the information that's coming out. Leading up to this thing, you said you were kind of backing up now a little bit and mm-hmm. moving back and forth. You said you kind of laid out a strategy with your agent to, to tackle theater and stage in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was there prior to Awaken and Sing? Uh, prior career-wise, um, I mean, the highlights are my, one of my biggest professional uh, experiences that, that sort of had the, the most effect on me was uh, doing a show called The Wire on HBO. I was a, a series regular on that show for a year, and that was just a crowning experience for me professionally. David Simon is the the writer-producer down there, and he is dealing with – he's very much politically uh, along the lines of, of, of my my beliefs – um, and he's dealing, basically tackling these huge issues of poverty in America and what creates it. So he's got this sprawling canvas that's now, I think, in their fifth season. And I happen to be lucky enough to, to be a series regular for the second season. So I was down there working on that. And that was kind of the biggest experience I've had so far. 
Um, and then uh, just all you know, all sorts of uh, smaller roles in in big movies and small movies. I had a small role in The Manchurian Candidate. I had a, a small role in a movie called The Lords of Dogtown, which that was kind of the experience that sent me back to New York, um, wanting to pursue theater. It wasn't that it was bad. It was just um, it, it just didn't feel creative. You know, I wouldn't. I didn't. I was out there for eight weeks, nine weeks working on this thing, and I, I didn't really learn anything. I didn't. I had met a, a few nice people, but. I just felt kind of drained afterwards, like I had spent a lot of effort not doing much. And, um, and I came back just really wanting to recharge my batteries and be creative again. I came back and first did a show called Sin at the New Group, uh, where I played a victim of uh, child molestation by a, a Catholic priest. And then uh, I went into a show called uh, Manuscript, which was a young playwright named uh, Paul Grelong, who's now writing for Law & Order SVU. Then I went up to the Roundabout and did a show called Mr. Marmalade. And after that, I did Awaken Sing. Yeah, so yeah, so you had a nice progression building up. And, yeah, it was <laughs> kind of a, a smaller moving from downtown to uptown and culminating in the Broadway experience. So I have to ask, is your back sore? You oh, my God. Yeah, good question. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, I actually I make a point of getting a massage once a week. Uh, on Mondays, on my day off, I go down to this wonderful, I'll give a little plug, this wonderful Chinese massage studio on Spring and Mott where they just get right in there and do all the dirty work. And it's the most painful experience of my life because of this show. I get I get uh, beat in the back and somewhere it's towards the end fierce. of the show. It's <laughs> real fierce. Yeah, it's it's no joke. And it's she, in the round, so you can't hide it with Steve. No, you know, there's no, no, no. She, she lays out on me. And yeah, I've got, like, I've got knots the size of apples in, in between my shoulder blades it's outrageous does she like come back after stage and laugh and go ha ha Howard <laughs> no no she's very polite and apologetic most nights but what can you do you know you gotta tell the story oh I think I think she's feeling good you know we, we try and stay close and, and communicate how we're feeling before before each show and it's it's only two people in the cast so it's really yeah. it's really dependent on um, honest and true interaction between the two of us I hope and so so we're really trying to stay close to each other and, and stay in tune with with how we're feeling. I think she's feeling good, you know. It's it's a tough show and, and there's a lot to be done each night, so so we're really just trying to stay close to the close to the vest and stay in the zone. Along with that, like we mentioned on the, the turning stage, but mm-hmm. there's really two set pieces, a television and a couch. So yeah. you're like We're the show. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is refreshing. Take know? us or leave us. You, yeah, okay. you have to be interested in what we're doing or you won't be interested in the show. And that's that's kind of the state of it. There's a lot of things in this show, I think, that kind of um, – it's, it's very minimalistic. It's very stripped down. And, and the writing itself touches on things that are somewhat uncomfortable. So I think the whole show is a process of uh, really putting people in touch with places in themselves that they may or may not be un- uh, uncomfortable with. And, and most likely they're pretty uncomfortable with them. So the responses have, have been quite varying and but that's that's what I love about it is that it puts people in a place of of questioning things about themselves and their life that uh, I think are quite necessary right now. So do you have any future plans at this point or just living in the moment? I have plans to dominate the world. <laughs> um, I, I have tons of future plans. I, I have a, cu- a couple of um, screenplays that I've worked on. One thing that I just optioned the life rights to a soldier who was in Iraq who uh, refused to fight. Um, so a bunch of things I'm working on writing-wise, and then um, acting projects. We're just looking at a bunch of things, and, and hopefully it'll be a good one. Yes. So you think you're going to do a little bit more time on stage? Or are you heading back to television film? 
Um, yeah, I, I think that I'm going to take a little break from theater for a while, just just for a minute. But um, yeah, Wake and Sing was uh, was another another hard show, another hard experience. It wasn't easy, uh, and and you know I can definitely take a break from the eight days a week for a little while. Uh, I, I feel like I had a good three year run of of being on stage pretty consistently and. And it, it was amazing. It really has filled me up and, and made me feel like going out and creating some things in another medium. So I'm going to pursue those avenues for a while, I think. Well, that won't be too soon because uh, Dying City is still playing through... April 29th at the Mitzi Newhouse at Lincoln Center. And uh, I think there's still a few tickets available, but not many. So I would rush out and get them if you, if you haven't yet. And one last thing, have you had a chance during all of this to catch your, your, your brother who's on stage in New York at the same time? I did. I went to uh, opening night of talk radio the other night, and he uh, is fantastic, as usual. It's, it's, really, uh, it's really a wonderful performance. He's, the, the play is hard, you know. It was written by a monologist. Wait, who, was, his Tony, was his Tony win last year, too? No, no, no. It was, it was two year before, years ago. Yeah, yeah. He I was won. Say, did you have the same he, year with that? Though? No, no. That would be embarrassing, because then we would have been in the same category, and I would have been beaten by him. <laughs> But uh, no, no. Uh, instead, I got to be in the same category with Mark Ruffalo, and we both lost. So, uh, no, he he was nominated two years ago, and 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 I think he'll be nominated again, and I think he might get it again, but maybe in the featured or in the leading category. And has he gotten to see your show yet? Yeah, he came to opening night as well. We we were very lucky in having uh, both of our opening nights on Sunday nights when we didn't have shows, so we both got to attend. All right. Well, I thank you so much for stopping in and talking with our listeners. And Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Michael. Best of luck with the rest of the run. All right. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side, and I'm about to cry. I've been kicked off the All That Chat forum on Talking Broadway, and I can't live with myself. Those of you who read All That Chat, yes, I'm Marco49. I'll admit it. I uh, read a little notice about the Pirate Queen. He started off his, uh, his uh, little bit by saying, well, I haven't seen the show, but hearing the buzz, I know it's going to be El Floppo. The Grinch will probably be back in the Hilton Theater next Christmas time. I wrote him back, actually, after seeing the show, I wrote him back and I said, uh, you twit, you must be lousy at your job. Actually, I have never seen you work, but I hear you lousy at your job. Aren't I telling him the same thing he was saying about uh, a Broadway show? Yes, I was. And uh, whoever the administrator is at all that chat read it and said, you're out. And uh, I'm really beside myself. I uh, caught very little sleep last night. I'm very upset. All I can say is uh, all that chat, screw you. I saw the Pirate Queen this past weekend. Loved every minute. I, I think I see the problem, though, with a lot of people. They say it's a little boring. There's a lot of exposition. Uh, there's a lot of talk. Uh, but I found all that talk interesting. It's, it's, a, it's about a young lady who's, who's taking on the Queen of England. She takes her on with armies. There's a love tri- triangle there. There's a, she's in love with this fellow named Tiernan, played by... Hadley Fraser, who's fantastic, and she's asked to marry someone else from a different clan to get the two clans together so that they can face England together. She has a baby by him and blah, 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 blah. To me, it's very enjoyable. I must say the the staging is absolutely breathtaking. You're all looking at a ship, 
you know, on stage with the unfurled sails. And uh, in fact, there's this great battle scene where you hear a cannonball hit the ship and the theater rattles. You hear the cement crackling, you know, behind you. And all of a sudden you see this tattered sail and you say, oh my God, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. And every once in a while they'll break into Irish clog dancing, which adds a little excitement and a, and, and a little bit of levity to the, to the situation. The end of Act One, though, is a jaw-dropper. Uh, actually, uh, uh, her father, played by Jeff McCarthy, is mortally wounded, and uh, he's dying, and they build a pyre, and uh, they set his coffin on fire. While they're doing this, they're dancing around the coffin. All of a sudden, flames shoot up from the stage. Watching it from the back of the theater, it just looked fantastic. You know, it just takes your breath away, some of the staging, some of the dancing, the acting. I may be in a minority considering the buzz, uh, but I, I love the show. I love Stephanie Block in the show, and uh, I'm afraid she might get lost in the shuffle uh, because we got a lot of great divas coming up for the part. Uh, a new diva in Legally Blonde, uh, that's uh, Laura Bell Bundy. Uh, I hear she's fantastic. And of course, the great Christine Ebersole, Leah Michelle from Spring Awakening, who I'm afraid might get lost totally. There's Charlotte Dembois from Chorus Line. There's Ashley Brown from Mary Poppins. And of course, there's Deborah Monk, who has, once again, a great 11 o'clock number in curtains. So as far as this year's Tony nominations are concerned, it's going to be a race to the end. But uh, I think it's going to be a good race. I was speaking to somebody this past week uh, who's in the theater, and she was saying how wonderful it is, the diversity we have in theater this year. If you watch the Tonys, you will see a total mixed bag of stuff going on. And I'm really excited to see what's going to take place. Well, until next week, this is Marty Cooper once again, except for being kicked off the All That Chat forum. Once again, I'll say stay on the positive side. On the positive side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say... I found it at the Colony. And for all of you listeners who use all that chat, I have to say that sounds like a pretty uh, tame reason to get booted from a forum. So if you use all that chat, come on, let's have a campaign to reinstate Marco49. I know Marty Cooper has a lot of fans out here, and he really is bummed by this. So help him out. Demand Marco49 be reinstated on all that chat. Let's make the Broadway Bullet presence felt. The best of company. La Muse Vinal is a company that is dedicated to producing new American works. And its artistic director, Mike Strozier, is also a playwright himself. So on his fourth play here, he again finds himself in the position of being playwright and producer of his work. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. <laughs> Mike Strozier just recently wrote The Green Game that is opening on... March 29th, Thursday. And uh, contributing music to the show is Paul L. Johnson, who's also joining us. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good. So, Mike, what's the show about? 
Um, the show is uh, basically modeled, I suppose, after the uh, movie Casablanca. That's where my original inspiration came from. But the uh, story is not related to that movie at all. It's uh, a, my fourth play, and it's about a, a it's set in the modern times. Uh, the main character, who's an antagonist, is uh, Senator Nicholas Albright. And he gets involved with these con artists, and they um, get him to give him some plates to uh, mint money. And um, he is basically, you know, duped into um, this counterfeiting operation, and it becomes his undoing. And his daughter is also involved. She's the one that brings him in as the mark. She's the steer. And, uh, and so then she, uh, there's some, some family secrets that are revealed, and, and basically she, uh, well, I don't want to give away the ending, but, you know, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and then what happens is it's set in a nightclub in Havana, Cuba. And so there's, uh, we have a full score of uh, music, which uh, our singer Carrie Ann Peterson sings a song at the beginning of each scene as if it, in a nightclub. And then the action itself stops and there's dances. We have a full cast of dancers as well as the actors. So, Paul, what were your thoughts when Mike approached you about the music for the show? Uh, basically, tell me what you want, I'll give you what you need. <laughs> And uh, do you enjoy kind of writing in this uh, chanteuse kind of 1940s vein? Um, this was a little bit different than I've probably ever done before, but I think the bigger challenge is probably writing the dances because I haven't written a whole lot of dance music. I've written mostly songs and stuff. I've written about 22 musicals at this point, so be they, you know, three or four songs or full scores. So this one was just, uh, you know, taking Mike's lyrics, which were rather poetic... What's that make, look? The, well, the, the audience couldn't see that. <laughs> the look was like, and what were you on when you wrote <laughs> yeah. this lyric? Anyway, <laughs> taking the lyrics and, you know, because they're, they're sort of poetic, like I said, poetic. So and just leaving them in that whole realm of, you know, trying to keep it in, in Cuba at that time. So Before we go any further, let's uh, take a listen to one of the songs. I know you brought Carrie here in the studio. This is The Raging Night's Boil. Sort of a little bit of a New Orleans shuffle. The raging nights boil And our hearts beat in toil As the surging tides rise Shrinking the land size Sun is dark and suns cover the lands Winds roar the ocean waves over Curious, 
how it feels for you going about wearing dual hats, both the producer and the writer for this, Mike? It's a little challenging. I'm also the director, so <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, you know our company, uh, part of our whole mission is to produce everything in house. So you know we have our own people, and we just keep producing more new plays. It's very challenging, but somehow we've been pulling it off uh, and doing a pretty good job at it. So I guess what I mean to, to say is that it's not just me, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of people like Paul, obviously, is a big part of this production. Because without the music and the dancing, there really would, there wouldn't be much. I mean, it, it's a play in and of itself, but that's really only like a third of the, of the whole thing. It, there's a big dancing, which uh, is choreographed by Mindy uh, Uppen, and then Paul, and then also Carrie Ann Peterson. So I guess four parts, really. Certainly it's a lot of work, but I think we've done this so, you know, it's our 10th production. So we seem to have gotten into a, a little bit of a rhythm, and things are going pretty well. What advice would you offer somebody else who's looking to kind of wear all three caps? Don't do it. <laughs> I get well, my, my, my advice is to get as many people to help you as, po- as you possibly can. Uh, and that's what I tried to do. Now, with Lemuse Vanal, you've uh, done 10 productions, correct? Yes, yes. So who are some of the other playwrights that you've worked with in the past here? Alan Konevsky, who was involved sort of in the earlier part of the... Um, of our company's origins, and we did a play by him. We also did John Chatterton, who runs the Midtown International Theater Festival. He has the studios down on 36th Street. We did a, a, one of his plays, uh, Beyond the Veil. Actually, we co-produced that one. And then John actually did another play off-Broadway by another playwright called uh, Gerald Zipper. It's called Secrets, and uh, we co-produced that. Let's see, then we did another uh, uh, p- production called Dead Poets Come Alive, where we, uh, we had three actors, Edgar Allan Poe, the poet Browning and um, Emily Dickinson. So as a playwright yourself, what are some of the, the biggest things you look for in a new play? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's one of the probably, if not the most hardest things, is to produce a new play and to make it work because uh, it has to be good. And, you know, the audience in New York City is, <laughs> is very demanding, so it's a big challenge. Um, what do I look for? I think it just has to be well-written. There has to be basically some kind of uh, more than one thing going on, uh, like, for instance, humor, um, like, let's just say the green game. It's not just me. It's the, the dancing, the music. There's many different elements to the, to the mix. It's like, it's like a chef, you know. He's uh, creating a, a fine recipe, and it's uh, more than one part to that, that dish. So that's what I'm looking for. Now, Paul, I know mm-hmm. you mentioned that you've written 22 other musicals as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there one or two you want to name in particular that you've worked on that you... Well, there's know? one that we're looking to do in a reading of sometime this year uh, called Madam, uh, based on the life of Madam C.J. Walker. We've got uh, Joey McNeely from The Boy From Oz sort of shepherding the project at this point, and he's done wonders in helping my collaborator rewrite the book. That was written two and a half years ago, and nobody wanted to do it because... Basically, it was a nice, impersonal biography. Now it's more of a human story, and we think it's going to have a chance of finding life this time. Um, I'm also writing a score for Trump the Musical with Bernard Margulies, who uh, has contributed to the Muse Vanal. And uh, hopefully that might be getting into a reading stage sometime midsummer, late summer. Yes, we definitely want to thank Mr. Margulies, who's made mm-hmm. the Green Game possible. All right. Now, again, uh, you want to remind our listeners where they can catch the Green Game? It is from March 29th to April 22nd, uh, Wednesday through Sundays at the, well, that's the Mint Theater, but it's called Theater 3, uh, which is 311 West 43rd Street on the third floor. It opens on Thursday, though, but then after that it goes Wednesday through Sunday. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
top of the trades. All right, first up, Harvey Firestein has officially decided that he does not have enough Tony Awards. So the Jujamson Theaters has announced that A Catered Affair, a new musical with book by four-time Tony Award winner Harvey Firestein, score by acclaimed composer John Buccino, and directed by Tony Award winner John Doyle, will open on Broadway at a theater to be announced in the coming season. Prior to Broadway, the new musical will be inaugurating the 2007-8 season at San Diego's Old Globe Theater. Performances begin September 20th. It was confirmed by Jujamson Vice President Jordan Roth. Mr. Firestein will also be featured in the cast. That means, yep, he's gunning for Tony 5 and 6 at the same time. Other casting news will be announced shortly. Yep, there ain't enough Tonys, and there ain't enough chances for everybody to get their turn at Rose's turn. Gypsy, starring Patti Lapone and directed by Arthur Lawrence, will be the first offering of New York City Center's new Encores Summer Star series, running from July 9th to 29th at New York City Center. A July 12th opening is planned. Spelling Bee is getting a gold star. Or a bronze star? What would a Comedy Central star be? Comedian Mo Rocca and actress Jennifer Seymard will be part of the new Broadway cast of the musical The 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, starting April 17th. Cast members from the San Francisco and Boston runs of Spelling Bee will join their former castmate Jared Gertner from Anatomy 1968, My Favorite Year, who currently appears in the Broadway run of the hit musical at Circle in the Square Theater. Mo Rocca, a special correspondent to The Tonight Show and formerly of The Daily Show, will take on the role of B-word pronouncer Vice Principal Douglas Panch for a limited engagement. Seymard, comedic actress seen off-Broadway and Forbidden Broadway and The Thing About Men, will reprise her turn from the national tour as B-coordinator Rona Lisa Peretti. That should be interesting. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it, especially Mo Rocca doing some of the special theme nights like the adult night and the, the gay night and whatnot. Could be a lot of fun. We'll be bringing you more weekly news next week in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. We've been working at lining up some great content. So just to let you know about some of the great interviews that are going to be coming up in the future, Ryan Driscoll and Celia Keenan-Bolger are going to be coming into the studio to talk about the CD release of Summer of 42, which was written by David Kirschenbaum, was an off-Broadway hit a few years back. We're going to be also talking with Karen Ziemba of Curtains, the director and actors of Adolf Fugard's new play, Exits and Entrances. Ought to be interesting. Next week... Composer Nancy Ford and two of the actors from Anne of Green Gables at TheaterWorks come in and do an exclusive in-studio performance for everybody. That'll be fun next week. And we're going to be having a lot more, so make sure you stay tuned. Remember, you can reach me at info at broadwaybullet.com, and I do love to hear your suggestions and feedback and, uh, you know, marriage propositions. Those are, you know, I can live with those. A reminder to all of you aspiring musical theater composers to submit songs to info at broadwaybullet.com for our Waiting in the Wings series, which will be coming up in a little bit. Finally got a couple accompanists, so now I can start kind of, you know, leaning a little pressure on some performers to do these. So it's a bit of a process. I want to have a couple songs to pitch to each singer as I'm going so that they can pick something that matches them and that they feel attached to. So definitely keep sending those in. I know we've got a lot of students listening, you know, high school students and college students. So, uh, you know, maybe, hey, do me a favor, tell all your students in your class about the program. I'm sure you know a couple other drama geeks like us, huh? Well, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. And until next week, I want to thank you all for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet with me.
arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.